Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you. I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 283. Um, I've got a massive, massive episode for you guys today. We're going to talk about Justin Herbert, his first start. I'm going to show a lot of film on that. Really proud of it. We'll talk about the Cowboys' crazy win. We'll talk about the Patriots-Seahawks game, my favorite game in a long, long time. Mitchell Trubisky, Dwayne Haskins, the Vikings, Gardner Minshew. I mean, the second week of the NFL season just goes on and on and on. There's so many things to talk about. We'll end this show by talking about the Ohio State quarterback, Justin Fields. And I want to say, you know, it is in my plan at some point this week to talk about Josh Allen and Sam Darnold. I've got a lot of questions about Sam Darnold. What is going on with the Jets? I can't figure it out. I've got a lot of things I need to dive into and and really get answered by watching tape. And then Josh Allen, my buddy Brett Coleman texted me. Yeah, was it a couple days ago? Yesterday, Sunday, maybe. Um, Brett texted me, goes, dude, you got to watch Josh Allen. He's unbelievably good. And so I got to dive into the film and figure out what's going on with the Bills quarterback. That's not today. That's coming at some point. Uh, later this week. I also want to apologize. I was planning on recording this episode on Monday morning. And then on Sunday night, uh, I became aware of the fact that there's this whole group of people that I've never properly had enough empathy for. I got a migraine. I don't know if you've ever had a migraine before. I got one. And uh, it just really took me out of commission for a little while. I couldn't do anything. My head was just throbbing. I've just never had... I've never experienced anything like it. I just I was completely useless for a while. And uh, you know, people that deal with migraines consistently. I have so much empathy. I have no idea how you guys operate. I could not do it. I just don't understand. Uh, I took some drugs. I tried to sleep it off. I've been trying to catch up ever since. And uh, I'll be totally honest, like it kind of worked out okay. I you know, last week when I covered week 1 of the NFL season, I did it in part 1 and part 2. And uh, this week, I just combined them. One episode for the entire week. A lot of content here. I also want to say, because I was late, I just leaned into it. I said, look, if I'm going to be late, I might as well make it incredible. And so there's a lot of film. If you're watching on YouTube, this episode's going to have a lot of film sprinkled throughout it. Like the Justin Herbert video has basically become a film analysis video. I'm really excited about that stuff. So uh, I know it's late. But I'm very proud. It's high quality. And so I think I, there's that trade-off where I can either make a product really quickly that's not as good, or I can take my time and make something that I think is incredible. This episode is one I think is incredible. I want to talk about Seattle. On Sunday night, the Seattle Seahawks beat the New England Patriots 35-30. to And this was my favorite football game I've watched in a very, very long time. Oh, my goodness, every second mattered. And there was so much little nuance that is so interesting to me. And while I watched this video, or this game, it's not a video. While I watched the game, uh, the, the Seahawks-Patriots, I just thought of Brett Coleman, my friend. Uh, this is the kind of game that deserves a short film about it. It's that intense. It's that interesting. There's so many little moments you could talk about and highlight, so many little storylines and uh, look, if Brett Coleman never does a video about it, then I will, uh, because I, I just think it deserves that. And, you know, maybe next summer I'll find the time, because there were so many important moments that got, I, I think, just lost in the, the story of the game. 
And I have not been this glued to my television since I remember watching Joe Burrow last year. It was the last time I was just was so engaged with every single play of a football game. It was just one of those rare, special football games. I just I will remember this the rest of my life. I really, really loved the Seahawks-Patriots game from Sunday night. You know, uh, there's little moments. One of the moments that stands out to me a lot is a second and nine where Patriots receiver Demir Bird cut his split down. He lined up inside the numbers. He scooted inside from where he normally lines up and lined up farther inside. And Bird ran an out route. Now, Seahawks defender Quinton Dunbar saw what was happening, and he jumped the route. He almost had a pick six, but he dropped the ball. If he catches it, he's gone to the house with a pick six. And that happened before halftime. Now, later in the third quarter, again, the receiver lines up way inside. Quinton Dunbar looks at that and goes, oh, I know what's coming. Bang, he jumps the route. This time he finishes the play. He gets an interception. And there are so many little moments like that sprinkled all throughout this game. Now, look, Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson was completely incredible. He was 21 for 28 passing, 288 yards, five touchdowns, did have an interception. But the interception was kind of ridiculous. He literally threw a perfect pass off of Greg Olson's hands. He, Greg Olson drops it. It gets popped up in the air grabbed and taken for a pick six. If Russell Wilson keeps doing what he's doing every single week and we're two games in, I know that like two years ago, Ryan Fitzpatrick had this incredible stretch where he was just Fitz magic and unbelievable. But if Russell Wilson keeps doing what he's doing, he's going to easily win the NFL MVP. And honestly, I don't see any reason to believe that Russell Wilson's not going to keep playing at this incredibly high level. He's playing the Seahawks, you know, um, my buddy Brett made a video saying, you know, kind of explaining how the Seahawks have really opened things up and are finally letting Russell Wilson just, it's called let Russ cook. He's just talking about how Russ has finally been allowed to just go crazy and do whatever he wants. And uh, I just think there's no reason to believe that Russell Wilson is not going to keep playing at a high level the way he's playing. Now, Cam Newton, the Patriots quarterback. I think Cam has become my favorite story in the NFL this year. There's no player that is more captivating to me than Cam Newton. And I, I know that's crazy for me to say. I've never been like the biggest Cam Newton fan. I now have become. I'm like, okay, I, I am all in on Cam Newton. He really, really, really impressed me on Sunday night. Watching this game, I thought to myself, how did the Patriots get Cam Newton? It's unbelievable they brought him in. Like, how did the other NFL teams allow the Patriots to get him? It, it baffles me endlessly when I watch him play. Not only that, the Patriots got Cam Newton on a minimum salary. They're paying the guy just barely over a million dollars a year. Think about it this way. Marcus Mariota, the backup quarterback in Las Vegas for the Raiders, is making a lot more money than Cam Newton. Andy Dalton, a backup quarterback in Dallas, makes almost more than twice as much money a year as Cam Newton is making in New England. The Patriots are paying Cam Newton nothing. Pennies on the dollar. I, I, I will go as far as say that this is the most cost-effective NFL contract in NFL history. We've never seen a team get 
such an insanely high benefit for such a low cost. It really, truly is insane. They're paying Cam Newton less money than a team is paying, like less than the Jets are paying their quarterback Sam Darnold on a rookie contract. Nothing. They're paying Cam Newton nothing this year. Bill Belichick is a genius. I just, the more I, and I've done a lot of research about Bill Belichick this week. I'm doing another topic later in the week about his experience with the New York Jets. The more I dive into Bill Belichick, I just get more and more impressed. And it's very, very clear. When you watch Cam Newton, he's getting the best coaching he's ever gotten in his entire life. His timing, his rhythm, his accuracy. This is the best I have ever seen Cam Newton play in his entire career. Cam made some plays on Sunday with, with timing, accuracy, anticipation, throws that I've never seen him make before. And I went, okay, Cam, th- th- this is just really, really cool. Oh, yeah, by the way, <laughs> Cam Newton can run the ball. He had two rushing touchdowns on Sunday. And I just go back to this. Watching Cam Newton in New England gives me a whole new understanding of Tom Brady. You know, Brady got called a system quarterback his entire career in New England. And I think it's a little bit weird, a little bit silly, because it's not the play calling that made Tom Brady successful. You know, Tom Brady, there's some stuff you can never take away from him. He worked his butt off. He made checks at the line of scrimmage that were just Tom Brady being insanely good at the mental side of football. And then, you know, his decision-making, his work ethic. Like, Tom Brady, you can't say the guy isn't incredibly good because he always has been incredibly good his entire career. So there are things you can never take away from him. But the Patriots' approach, 1,000% made Tom Brady better. New England is the best business, not just in sports, I've ever seen in any business. The one thing New England does better than anybody I've ever seen in any facet of the world is getting the most out of people. I'm a film nerd. I watch a lot of movies. A good director, they get the best performance out of an actor. They can make an okay actor have an incredible performance. Similar things happen to England, where New England, every single time New England has a player play for them, they maximize that player's success. And, you know, Tom Brady in New England always had an offense specifically designed to fit him. And with Cam Newton, the Patriots have designed an offense specifically to fit his skill set. And, you know, in Carolina, the Panthers always kind of seem to have a limited view of Cam Newton, where they saw what he was at Auburn in college and just said, we're going to do more of that. Now, the difference here is that the Patriots saw what Cam Newton could become. They had vision. They have transformed Cam Newton. And I think part of it is they weren't afraid to challenge him, which is very, very cool for Cam. There's a couple secrets in the world that I would give pretty much anything to know. Like, I really want to know, do aliens exist? I've always wondered, like, what is going on at Area 51? And then who really killed JFK? I'm just deep, deep fascination. I'm like, I want to, aliens, JFK. The next thing is, what in the world did the Patriots say to Cam Newton to sign him for the minimum amount of money? What happened in that room? What was the conversation like? I will always wonder, what did the Patriots say to Cam Newton in the 2020 NFL offseason? I I wonder if the Patriots were just honest. Were they just saying, like, look, we're not going to pay you anything. You've been hurt two years in a row. Sure. Cam, hey, this is Bill Belichick talking. 
Bill Belichick goes, okay, Cam, go sign to the crappy organization. Go make a couple million dollars, but have fun losing. And again, I think Bill Belichick goes, look, I'm not paying you. But I know you believe you're capable of more. We're going to give you the best coaching you've ever had. You'll win. You're going to prove people wrong with us in New England. Like, how's that for a sales pitch? Is that what happened? Is that what Bill Belichick told Cam Newton? We might never know. I hope someday there's a documentary or a book or something where we can get a definitive definitive answer. What was said to Cam Newton in that room? But it's so cool, like, the idea that they said, we're going to make you the best quarterback you've ever been. We're not going to pay you anything, but you're going to become a great quarterback. And what's even cooler than that is that Cam said yes. Cam said, I will take the coaching. I'll take the improvement. You believe in me and want to transform me as a player? Pay me nothing. I'll prove everybody, including you, wrong. It's a perfect fit. Cam is a great leader. The Patriots are getting the best out of him. And look, the Patriots got the ball with a minute 42 seconds left in the fourth quarter against Seattle. And I, I, I love Russell Wilson. I'm, I live in the Northwest. I was nervous for Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. I believed in Cam Newton. I knew Cam is going to drive the ball down the field. And that's very, very telling. I, I had confidence in Cam. Now what happened was this game came down to one play. First and goal on the one-yard line with two seconds left. And first of all, just let's take a minute. That's incredible. Like, how wonderful of a game. that That's how evenly matched it was. It came down to one final play. Any game like that, to me, is just a, a really, really fun time. But the Patriots had one play from the one-yard line. And they ran quarterback power, which I think is the right call there. They'd run it all game. It worked the entire game. New England did out. Yeah, the Patriots had already run it like four or five times already where, you know, Cam had two touchdowns on a quarterback power play, very similar to that. And uh, Seattle's defense appeared to have no answer. But the Patriots went to the well one too many times. The only time on Sunday that Seattle on defense was able to stop quarterback power was the one time it mattered most. How cool is that? Everybody knew what was coming. We knew Cam's going to run the ball up the middle. And Cam got stopped. Mm. Poetic, beautiful, interesting. You know, and if you're New England, right, if you're the Patriots, you have no regret. Because if you have one play to win a game, you run your best play with your best player. And that's what the Patriots did. A Seattle Seahawks fan would know the pain of throwing the ball in the one-yard line, right? We all remember when Seattle did that. They had Marshawn Lynch, and they threw the ball through the game-ending interception. So, no, if you're going to lose a game, you might as well lose a game running your best, most successful play. I, I will say that forever. I don't think the Patriots did the wrong thing. Don't get cute. Do what you're good at, and if they beat you, at least you can live without regret. The Patriots have no reason to feel regret after that game. This was an incredible, incredible game. I'm not kidding. I could watch the Patriots play Seattle 10 weeks in a row, just over and over and over again. Uh, Just imagine all the little tweaks and the little changes that would happen 
from week to week. It just would be just incredible. I, I, I wish we could see that every single week. It'd be amazing. You know, one of my favorite movies is a Matthew McConaughey movie called Sahara. It's cheesy. It's fun. It's a silly treasure hunting movie. They could make a new Sahara movie every single year. Just change a couple things. Like the same cast. It's basically the same movie every time. But there's a couple tweaks. I would eat it up. I'd watch it. I'd pay probably a little too much money to go see it every single year in theaters. Because I love that movie. I love that formula. And, you know, I think it's an, un- it's like kind of the, if you like the Uncharted video game series, it's the Uncharted movie we never got. I feel the exact same way about this game where I could watch the Patriots play Seattle every single week, just be fat and happy, and just enjoy the experience week in and week out. Now, you did think I was done. I know you're like, Zach's coming to a close. He's done talking about the Seahawks and the Patriots. I got one more thing to say, maybe two, I guess. First of all, the David Moore touchdown catch uh, right on the pylon where he's falling backwards. He got two feet in bounds. Unbelievable catch. Had a good time watching that. Now, number two, Patri- uh, what am I saying? Seahawks receiver DK Metcalf had four catches for 92 yards and a touchdown. And his key moment was a 54-yard touchdown while being guarded by Stephon Gilmore who is last year's Defensive Player of the Year in the NFL. And look, it's funny. Anytime DK Metcalf does literally anything, (laughs) people come running from the hills. People come running from everywhere. They all come to remind me, oh, how wrong I was about DK Metcalf. Like, yeah, I know. I don't need the reminder. DK Metcalf is incredibly successful. And look, it's so cool to me because the guy has shown so much improvement from, you know, really beginning of last year to end of last year, then last year to this year. DK Metcalf just gets exponentially better, it feels like, every time I watch him. And uh, Seattle uses his skill set perfectly. DK Metcalf just keeps getting better and better and better. And I love watching it. Um, I don't let my ego get in the way of enjoying somebody be successful. And DK Metcalf, Wow, is incredibly successful. I'm not a fortune teller. The dude clearly works incredibly hard. So I don't, I don't have a, I don't feel really bad about being wrong about that. I'm sad. I hope he doesn't hate me. Um, But I'm happy for DK Metcalf. And uh, I just had such a good time. This game, Seahawks, Patriots. It's my favorite game I've watched in a long, long time. And uh, I really, as a, as a football fan, I needed this moment to enjoy for quite a while. Now, I want to make a side tangent real quick. I have no problem being wrong. And I know it confuses people. Some people are a bit thrown off by it. In the sports media, there's really this like weird, deep, egotistical attachment to being right. And I understand it. People want to feel smart. It feels good. You know, I, Zach Schaumler, I believe that I offer some interesting analysis on the sports world. And a lot of the time, I think I get stuff right. I've made predictions over the years that I'm very proud of. You know, I was an early adopter of Kyler Murray. I was like the very first person in the sports world that was saying, hey, Gardner Minshew is awesome. And you can go back. I made a video about him in college saying Gardner Minshew is going to be a really good quarterback. I was right about that. And last year, I predicted the Washington team to go 3-13. and 13. Guess what? I got a lot of hate. A lot of anger right now. Hey, you know what? Washington went 3-13. and 13. 
I was right about that. But really, that's, you know, the for me, that's one of the first times I've ever gloated about the times I've been right about stuff. And that's very intentional. I don't like being the guy bragging and throwing it in somebody's face. I'm right sometimes. Uh, I'm also wrong sometimes. And I think one of the most unhealthy things in the sports world is that when people are wrong, they run from it. They hide from it. And they feel like it's deep shame. They try to avoid it like the plague. I want to change all that. I think it's incredibly stupid. You know, I'm a human being. And it's impossible for me to get everything right. That's just not a realistic expectation. And and I hope if you listen to me because you think I'm right all the time, turn off the show. Don't watch anymore. Don't listen anymore. I can't live up to the standard of being right all the time. I just, I don't want to even try. I hope you listen to Strong Opinion Sports because I'm interesting and I work very, very, very hard to be honest. I try my best to be honest, as honest as I possibly can. And one of my core values is that when I'm proven wrong, I dive in. I try to talk about, huh, what happened? Let's address it. Let's own it. What was wrong with my thinking? How, you know, I love trying to understand what makes me wrong. Did a player just get better? Why was why was my thinking wrong? I try to learn from the moments when I'm wrong. It's really really fun for me. And and I look at the sports world as you look around the sports media just in general. Everybody is so deeply concerned with being right. And when you hear me say that at first, you go, Zach, how can? What do you mean? Like, of course you want to try to be right. Yeah. Try to be right for sure, like uh, totally. Like you don't, you don't. I hope nobody has the the intention of being wrong. That that doesn't make any sense to me. So that's not what I'm saying. Don't let that, don't let yourself hear that. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But people love to brag, and throw their predictions that they get right in other people's faces and be like, ah, see, like you, you see the shows with two panels of people and they're like, well, guess what, idiot? I got this right. Ha 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 ha. We predicted on yesterday's show, like. I never, ever, ever want to be that. That's all ego. I just not, I don't, I don't want to play that game. I don't enjoy that. It's not what I want. And and for me, the sports world is this mini self-contained like universe. I talk about it. It's so much fun. I love tracking all the storylines. I'm a gigantic sports nerd. And I've said this before. I want to repeat it. I don't think there's any shame in being wrong. What's shameful is when you're wrong, like when you're proven wrong and you don't address it, you don't own it, you just avoid it. That's shameful is being proven wrong and not owning it. Those are some of my core values. It's very, very important to me to share that. I try to be interesting. I try to be honest. I don't watch other sports shows. I don't listen to other shows. That's very intentional. It drives me nuts when people accuse me of copying other people. I don't. I, I really intentionally avoid. There's two people I watch. I listen to Brett Coleman. I listen to Tom Grossi. And occasionally I, I'll, I'll watch a Flemlo video. I, those are three content creators. They're my favorite three. I love them all. They're phenomenal. But I grew up watching network television and listening to network sports radio. I have no doubt that some of my the th- some of the way I talk is I'm sure influenced by the way I grew up listening to 
large sports radio hosts. I have no doubt. And then, you know, I worked for ESPN and I worked for Fox Sports and I worked for Pac-12 Network. That's some of my background. When I started the show, I was working for networks, literally. And I never want to be like them. I never, ever, ever want to be like network television or network sports radio. I try to avoid the things that drive me nuts about those shows. You know, there's so many problems. And look, I'm not perfect. But I have my own approach. And I hope that people respect that and can appreciate that. Um, I got to say, I love predictions. I think predictions are a fun, interesting part of, and kind of necessary part of being interesting. Like for me... I like making a prediction because it helps me understand, like, what should I track? Like, I make a prediction. Great example is, uh, like, you say, hey, the Bears quarterback, Mitchell Trubisky, I don't think he's going to do very well. Lo and behold, Sunday comes. He does really, really great. It's like, well, I made a prediction. Clearly, I was wrong. Let's talk about why. That's fun for me. I love that process of making a prediction then analyzing how things go. But I also think if you're going to make a prediction, you have to explain how you landed there. And as I look at my NFL predictions episode, the long, you know, where I do like, hey, the, this team's going to go 4-12, and 12, and I, I talk about their roster a little bit, I try to blend the lines between a preview and a prediction. I think I don't do a good enough job in those videos of allowing people to see the process behind the scenes. There is a very deep, like, a process that takes a couple days worth of research to prepare that kind of video. But I think people just go hear 4-12 and 12 and go, why would you say 4-12? and 12? And I probably should go through and say, here are the 12 losses I see. This is why I see them going 4-12. and 12. Something like that. But again, predictions are fun because they allow you to find storylines to track during a game. There is some, I think, incredible importance with that. And I want to end with this because, and first of all, some people just say a verdict of a prediction without offering any kind of reasoning behind it. I hate that stuff. But again, Perfect is a very, very unhealthy expectation. Forget about sports for a minute. I want to talk about life. In life, you're going to screw up. You're going to make mistakes. I encourage you to accept that and move on. It might make you angry, but hey, guess what? You're going to crash your car. You're going to get a D. You're going to do something. You're going to make mistakes. No matter what those mistakes are, you're going to make mistakes in life because you're human. That's what we all do. What's important is that we learn from our mistakes. And the sports world seems to not have that kind of, that doesn't exist in sports media. And it's so weird to me. You make a prediction. It's okay to acknowledge, hey, I didn't get this right. But learn from it. What do we learn from the wrong Mitchell Trubisky prediction, for example? Why was I wrong? Why was this a bad idea? What was wrong with my thinking? Failure is part of life, but you have to learn from it. It's so, so important. If you don't learn from a mistake, then that mistake becomes meaningless. And that, that's a big shame. Again, what I hope that people take away from this topic is not only my deep frustration with the sports media and network media in general, especially, but I also hope that people hear this, that a loss can become a lesson. But you have to learn from your mistakes and learn from your failures. I make predictions all the time. A lot of the time I get them right, and some of the times I get them wrong. And maybe, maybe some days are worse than others, right? I have no idea. I don't really track it. I, I track what I'm wrong about usually more than anything. And I just want to say that it, I have no problem being wrong. It's totally okay with me. I just try to learn from the moments when I'm wrong. 
And I just wish that the sports media world in general did more of that, where, hey, it's okay to be wrong, but don't avoid it. Don't run from it, run from it like it's a plague. And I hope I'm making sense here. Uh, these are some of my core values. It's deeply, deeply meaningful to me. And I just I want to say one more time, perfection is just an unhealthy, unrealistic expectation. Let's talk about the Dallas Cowboys. Um, man, the Dallas Cowboys and the Atlanta Falcons. Oh, my goodness. What a ridiculous, incredible, special game. Probably my favorite Cowboys game I've ever watched in my entire life. This is a game that Cowboys fans will remember. And really, this is a memory that I hope Cowboys fans cherish and appreciate and enjoy for a really really long time. What a cool game we had on Sunday. The Cowboys won 40 to 39. And first of all, the Atlanta Falcons had a 20 point lead very, very early in this game. And it reminds me actually a lot of the Kansas City versus Houston game in the playoffs last year, where the Houston Texans had a 24 point lead early off in that playoff game. But the problem was that Houston did not earn that lead. It was handed to them by the team they were playing against. I think something similar happened on Sunday where the Falcons really did not earn the 20-point lead. And when you don't earn your lead, it can cause problems later. What happened was Dallas made a ton, just a ton, a smattering of mistakes early on in this game. They had like three fumbles and a, I guess it was exactly three fumbles and a failed fake punt in the first quarter alone. And they kept handing incredible field position to Atlanta. The reality is that once Dallas got their act together and started waking up and playing the game properly, they scored 40 points. And first of all, I want to say that I believe the Cowboys quarterback, Dak Prescott, deserves a ton of credit. The dude played really, really well the entire game. Even when his team was losing, he was never really the problem. Dak, despite the bad first half his team around him had, Dak was playing great even in the first half. And then what's even cooler is that, and this is something I've really harped on Dak Prescott for not doing. I've repeatedly criticized Dak Prescott for not being good enough when it matters most at the end of a game. Well, hey, guess what? On Sunday against Atlanta, Dak delivered when it mattered most at the end of the game. That part made me so happy. I was happy to see that. Now, there's a small mistake Atlanta made. There's really a couple of them, but there's one mistake Atlanta made that drove me nuts. I'm a massive, massive football nerd. I played quarterback in college. Uh, My whole life, my dad makes fun of me because I take notes when I watch football. You can find notebooks I've used back from when I was 10 years old taking notes about football. That's how I learned about the game of football. I took notes for years. And one lesson I learned over the course of my entire life following and just being a nerd about football is that when it comes to a two-point conversion, you should only go for it if you need it. Otherwise, take the easy points. If there's an easy PAT, take that unless you need a two-point conversion. Uh, if If you're chasing another team and they're down like 16 points, then and then you get a touchdown. Yeah, go for two. Make it an 8.1 possession game. Totally get it. Or on the flip side, if you're up by, say, seven points when you score a touchdown, you want to make it a nine-point lead so that it's a two-possession game, sure, go for a two-point conversion. Those are a couple moments where 
it makes sense to go for a two-point conversion. Now, Atlanta went for a two-point conversion when they were up 26-7. to I will never understand this, this weird decision here. Atlanta missed out on one point in the game. Atlanta could have been up 27-7. to Instead, they went for a two-point conversion and did not get it. That made the game 26-7 to instead, a 19-point lead. For whatever reason, I will never understand again, Atlanta thought that a 20-point lead was not good enough. Their OCD decision was that we're going to try to make it a 21-point lead. Ugh. Well, it cost them. That one point mattered at the end of the game. They ended up losing the game by one point. Now, the onside kick at the end of this game was unbelievable. I got to say, there's one more mistake I didn't talk about. It's not even in my notes, but as I think about this game, there's one other mistake the Falcons made. Drives me crazy. Uh, I believe it was third and six where they had Russell Gage, a receiver, line up at quarterback. He catches a snap, throws a deep ball. Just a beautiful, perfect, dime, incredible throw to Julio Jones. Julio Jones in the end zone. I've never seen this. Drops a touchdown. Julio Jones, who is my personal favorite receiver in the NFL. I've never seen Julio Jones drop a pass like that. And I was baffled and shocked when that happened. I went, Julio Jones dropping that? And maybe, I don't, I think maybe the lesson from NFL Week 2 in general is just that even the greatest players make mistakes. I saw Aaron Rodgers just had a bubble route. He just threw out of bounds. I went, that's a weird miss. Um, saw Julio Jones drop a touchdown. Even the best of the best make mistakes, but that watching Julio Jones drop the game-winning touchdown, what would have been the game-sealing, game-winning touchdown, broke my heart. I went, ooh, that's just awful for Julio Jones. Now, I want to go to the onside kick because Dallas scored with 149 left in the game. They were then down 37-39. to And Dallas kicked an onside kick, and they got it. They got the ball back. And this was one of the coolest onside kicks I have ever seen in my entire life, where the Cowboys kicker, Greg Zerline, did not put the ball on a kicking tee. Instead, he laid the ball sideways and kicked the slowest onside kick you'll ever see. It's like a slow roller. It looked like a Tiger Woods golf putt. And the Falcons were like frozen in a trance watching the ball roll towards them. And there's this coaching point that drives me nuts for the Falcons where Atlanta at any time can go grab the ball. They don't need to wait at all. The minute the ball is kicked, you can run and grab it. They are the receiving team. They can always go get the ball. Now, the kicking team who's trying to get the onside kick has to wait until the ball rolls 10 yards. And I guarantee you across the NFL today – in special teams meetings, everybody's watching this Greg Zerline onside kick, and every special teams coordinator is telling their guys, hey, by the way, if the ball's ever rolling really slow, just go grab it because they need to wait for the ball to go 10 yards. You, the receiving team, does not. And the fact that the Falcons could have just gone and grabbed the ball and instead let it roll and roll and roll and roll. It's like, like, my eyeballs are like popping out of my head. I'm like, go grab the ball. And they just watched the Dallas Cowboys grab the football. It's like, 
Oh my, how could you? And the minute that happened, the minute the Cowboys got the onside kick, you know the game's over. You're like, well, not only do the Cowboys have great field position, they also have a ton of momentum now. And it was one of the most insane, weird things I've ever seen in football. The the Falcons just watching this onside kick roll towards them very, very slowly. Clearly, either they didn't know the rule, or they were hoping that the ball would stop rolling, or they just were so confused at what they were seeing, they just all froze. I don't know. But Dallas kicked the field goal. They won 40-39. to 39. And I, I just was like, what the heck did I watch? What did I watch? I can't believe it. It was, I, Cowboys fans, again, you guys better cherish that for the rest of your lives. What a crazy, interesting game. Now, Matt Ryan, the Falcons quarterback, is now connected with two of the biggest blown leads I can remember from my lifetime. Memorably bad moments in NFL history where they were up 28-3 in the Super Bowl and they lost. And now they were up 26-7 against Dallas and they blew that lead as well. And I know a lot of people do not know how to feel about Matt Ryan. Maybe you can say they had a 20-point lead, not a 19-point lead, whatever you want. I don't really care. And again, I know people look at Matt Ryan today and are like, how do you feel about the guy? So I want to offer some context about Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan inherited a really bad Atlanta Falcons team. Remember, they lost Michael Vick in 2006. They had this awful team in 2007. They went like 4-12. and And in 2008, Matt Ryan was drafted with a number three overall pick in the NFL draft. So he had to live up to Michael Vick, an incredible quarterback who played before him, captured the nation. Probably Michael Vick, I would say, changed the game of football where look at a quarterback today. They all can run. They all can move. That's because every kid grew up watching Michael Vick and said, well, I guess really what happened was high school coaches saw Michael Vick running around and realized we're going to make our best athlete play quarterback. And so that's why you see Kyler Murray and Lamar Jackson, and you have all kinds of dudes running around in the NFL because Michael Vick happened. So Michael Vick changed the game in many ways. Yeah, Matt Ryan had to follow that guy up. And consider this. Matt Ryan was a top five pick. And say what you want about Matt Ryan. You can say he's bad, he's not this, he's not that. But Matt Ryan transformed the Atlanta Falcons. And he did a lot better than most top five picks throughout the NFL. Here's a couple other top five picks at quarterback, and we'll start with two really easy ones. Remember Ryan Leaf, the number two overall pick? Huge bust. Failure. Awful. Jamarcus Russell's another one that's just like cherry-picking an easy one. Number one overall pick in 2007, the year before Matt Ryan was drafted. Massive, massive failure. But those are easy. Here's a couple other ones that you might realize. These are quarterbacks picked in the top five that Matt Ryan has outperformed in his career. Mark Sanchez, a number five overall pick. Blake Bortles went number three overall to the Jacksonville Jaguars. RG3 was a number two overall pick. He's now a backup in Baltimore. Sam Bradford, the number one overall pick in 2010, two years after Matt Ryan. He's no longer in the NFL. Mitchell Trubisky, number two overall. I'll tell you what, I would take Matt Ryan every single day over Trubisky. Marcus Mariota. Number two overall pick to Tennessee. He's now the Raiders backup. Jameis Winston, number one overall. He's a backup. Matthew Stafford, number one overall. He's been a career 
disappointment. He just had a career of disappointment. The poor guy, Matthew Stafford, still makes mistakes that are boneheaded and just awful. And when you look at the context of Matt Ryan, he was drafted number three overall. How many other top five picks just fail at quarterback? You realize Matt Ryan deserves some appreciation. Not to mention, here are some other first-round quarterbacks recently that have not done very well. Paxton Lynch, Johnny Manziel, EJ Manuel, Jake Locker, Christian Ponder, Brandon Whedon, Blaine Gabbert. These are later picks that probably went to better teams. I really strongly believe that despite the connection to two embarrassing, you know, blown leads, Matt Ryan has been a massive success in a position where most people fail. Never, ever forget that. Never, ever forget the context that you can compare Matt Ryan to. And in this game on Sunday against Dallas, I don't think Matt Ryan did anything horribly bad. He just got a lead that he really didn't deserve. And uh, Dallas found a way to win that game. I want to end this, though, with saying Matt Ryan, despite his connection to these two blown leads, Matt Ryan deserves a lot of respect, especially when you consider how many quarterbacks did I just list that were drafted in the top five or in the first round that didn't make it. And you go, I guess when you consider that, Matt Ryan did pretty well in a position where most people fail. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, next up, we'll talk about the Raiders and the Saints, Monday night football from last night. Uh, Justin Herbert's first start. What a ridiculous, crazy night that was. Crazy time. Uh, fun. We'll talk about Justin Herbert. A lot of fun there. Uh, later, we'll talk about more NFL Week 2. We'll talk about Gardner Minshew, Tom Brady, Mitchell Trubisky, Dwayne Haskins, Kirk Cousins. Then at the end of the show, uh, Justin Fields, to some degree, called me out. We'll have fun with that. A lot of stuff up ahead. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. All right, we are back. Um, I want to talk about Monday Night Football. For me, I guess, so last night for me, for you guys knowing myself and how long it takes to edit the podcast and uh, adding clips and all the other stuff I'm doing, uh, I'm sure you're hearing this on Wednesday morning. Now, so on Monday Night Football, the Raiders beat the New Orleans Saints, and it was such a good win for the Las Vegas Raiders. Fun to say that. The night could not have gone better for them. It was their first game in a new stadium. They were playing a well-known team, the New Orleans Saints, who has a, you know, they have a high-profile quarterback, Drew Brees. What that means is people are watching. There are eyeballs on this game on Monday Night Football. And the Raiders won. They won 24 to, they won 34 to 24. They won by 10 points. And I'm not going to lie. When I saw that the Raiders were playing the Saints in their first game at home, I went, ooh, that's a brutal first game. And so I was really excited. And we'll talk about the game and what happened and part of why it's so exciting to me. But I got to say, first of all, I love the new stadium. It's beautiful. It's cool. Uh, it reminds me, it, the Death Star, I love the name. I'm really excited. I hope I get to go there someday to watch a football game. Now, the torch is a bit odd. It's a nice gesture. I know it's a, it's kind of a symbol representing Al Davis, the former Raiders owner. But I just, I have so many questions. When I look at the torch and what goes on there, what's the heating element? I know it's not like actual fire. Is it just lights? It looks kind of like a giant lava lamp. I know that's a weird thought, but as I look at the torch in the Raiders stadium, I have nothing but questions. And I go, what's going on there? I don't understand. Uh, I do think it's cool that the Raiders owner, Mark Davis, was not at the game in attendance. 
for him, he's kind of said that no fans means no Mark Davis. And I really like that because, and, and I actually really get it and understand too, Mark Davis knows what kind of experience he wants. He wants the first time he's in that stadium to have a, a crazy packed building full of Raider fans going wild at a football game. And uh, for him to understand that's the experience he wants the first time he goes to a Raider game, I respect that. I know it's kind of weird and unique, but I, I get and understand his feeling. Uh, I hope that gets to happen next year in 2021. Now, I hate to say this. Drew Brees was brutal to watch on Monday Night Football. Um, you know, I'm concerned that his age might be showing. You know, the Saints had the ball with six minutes left, and I had no confidence that they were going to be able to come back. And that's very, very telling to me. Uh, and if Drew doesn't play at a high level in the coming weeks, then he might become a liability. I mean, I love Drew Brees. It makes me sad to say that. He's one of my favorite quarterbacks of all time. I loved his book, Coming Back Stronger. Last night was not the Drew Brees I have grown used to watching week in and week out. I, I hope, you know, maybe he turns around things as the weeks go on. My fear is that Drew Brees is just going to have kind of an average, okay final year and we'll go, hmm. That stunk, man. I, I wish he would have hung it up maybe at his, in his prime. Now, I don't want to overreact it. It's one week. Again, he might turn it around in the next week or two, but I am concerned that Drew Brees' age is beginning to show. Now, I really, really liked what Derek Carr said before the game. He said he's tired of being disrespected. Awesome. You know what Derek Carr needs to do? If he's tired of being disrespected, Step it up, man. And guess what? As the game went on, Derek Carr got better and better and better. And I want to clarify something I've said previously. I made a video called John Gruden Wants to Replace Derek Carr. I maybe should have called it John Gruden Must Want to Replace Derek Carr. Because if you actually listen to the video and don't just get mad at the title, <laughs> you'll understand that my whole point was that Derek Carr is quite a good quarterback. And so it seems weird to me that John Gruden went out and got Marcus Mariota to be the backup quarterback, paid him a sizable amount of money. And my point was that I don't understand why John Gruden would not embrace Derek Carr. Because Derek Carr, what I see on film, is a very, very good franchise quarterback. Now, most people don't actually listen to what I say. They just get angry at a title and they yell and they scream and they comment stuff and send me all kinds of horrible messages on Instagram. Uh, now, my buddy Brett Coleman came on the show he made a really interesting point that I liked. He said that John Gruden is always comparing his quarterbacks to the one that got away, Brett Favre. And that's a really, really hard thing to live up to. I don't know how Derek Carr lives up to Brett Favre. It's just an impossible ask. Now, Derek Carr in this game against New Orleans made two mistakes early on where he didn't pull the trigger with open receivers. Where And both of them, by the way, happened on a second and ten. So the first play, he had a man wide open on an out route. And he just had to throw the ball with anticipation on time, but he didn't pull the trigger. He needs to hang in the pocket and throw the ball. And instead, he tried to reverse field and got sacked. It made a second and 10 into a third and 23 situation. It's a really big, costly mistake. Now later, Derek Carr had Darren Waller open deep down the right sideline, and he didn't pull the trigger again you know he's got to get rid of the ball instead he takes a sack and I got frustrated watching those plays so I cannot imagine I am sure 
I know those must eat away at the Raiders head coach, John Gruden. Now, John Gruden's offense is very, very tough. There's no hand-holding. I would say it's kind of like trigonometry or whatever whatever subject you struggled with the most as a, a kid in school. John Gruden's offense is going to challenge you. It's very tough. There's a lot of checks and line of scrimmage. There's a very, very small margin for error. Execution is critical, and expectations are very, very high if you play quarterback for John Gruden. Now, I personally, and I know this is controversial, I believe that Derek Carr would be better with another guy, a guy like Sean McVay or maybe Kyle Shanahan. In another offense, I think Derek Carr actually has an even better career. And it's not necessarily on John Gruden, although John Gruden, I love him. I think it's hard on quarterbacks. I think Derek Carr is just a better fit with another coach. I mean, the best year Derek Carr's ever had was ironically not with John Gruden as his coach. So I maintain this, and I know it makes people angry, but it's truly what I believe, that if John Gruden ever finds an option he thinks is better than Derek Carr, he will not hesitate to replace Derek Carr. And I love Derek Carr. I think he throws the ball beautifully sometimes. Um, now, I, and also, this is a weird tangent, but I love Derek Carr's cleats. The last two games against the Panthers and now against the New Orleans Saints, those black cleats he wears with the white bottom looks so smooth and so cool. I love it. Um, now, with all the, and I don't think what I said is criticism, but it's just a fact to me. It's what I genuinely believe is that if John Gruden finds a better option, he's going to replace Derek Carr. Now, with all that said, Derek Carr was the best quarterback playing last night on Monday Night Football. Last night for me, probably two nights ago for you on Wednesday morning now. Sometimes, I'm telling you, when Derek Carr throws the ball, it's the most beautiful spiral I've seen. Like ever. It just looks like Aaron Rodgers throwing the football. It's like a work of art. And he finished the game really, really strong. I just want to see Derek Carr keep improving and keep getting better. Now, to me, the best thing about the game on Monday Night Football for Raider fans is the young guys who made plays. You look around, you go, hey, Brian Edwards, a 21-year-old third-round pick rookie, had two really big catches. That's awesome. He's a receiver out of South Carolina. That's super cool. Rookie corner, Damon Arnett had seven tackles. Another young guy making plays. Jonathan Abram is making plays. He has safety. He's 23 years old. Second-year running back, Josh Jacobs, is a stud. Darren Waller might be 28, but he's the best. Fast, and I, don't know if fa- I don't know if best tight end in football is the right thing, but he's definitely the fastest tight end in football, and he is a star at the tight end position. The future is really, really bright for the Las Vegas Raiders, and not just because the Vegas Strip is lit up. I mean, I'm excited for them moving forward. they got a really interesting football team chock full of young players. And it's cool to me because the win against the Saints on Monday Night Football was a couple years in the making. The big moves the Raiders have made, trading away Khalil Mack, bringing in multiple first-round draft picks, drafting two years in a row really, really good. Those good moves are finally paying off for the Raiders, and I think that's very, very cool. Now, by the way, i got to end with this on Monday Night Football. What is going on with the musical performances at halftime on Monday Night Football, I just don't understand. The music never, ever works for me. And I'm not against the Killers played this week on Monday Night Football. I'm not against the Killers. They're, they're an interesting band. But the music, whether who, no matter who it is, it always feels awkward 
and and forced and like it doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the show. Like this is not the Super Bowl halftime show. How many people does it really bring in? How many people actually tune into the Monday night football game because of the musical performance at halftime? I don't know. I, I mean, I guess maybe if my favorite band was playing, I'd turn it on, maybe. And I'd probably just go find the YouTube video afterward. But it's all weird to me. I don't really understand. And ESPN is literally doing everything possible to get views. Every time I watch Monday Night Football, I go, what's with the music? Like, why is this happening? And I just hate network shows. I hate network television in general. Um, But, man, ESPN gets weirder and weirder. And the music thing at halftime on Monday Night Football, it, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work for me. Now, maybe their data says that it brings people in. I don't know. Um, but I, I just think it feels antiquated and weird, and I don't really understand why they still do the music thing on Monday Night Football. Guys, you know what time it is now. It's time to talk about the Chargers rookie quarterback, Justin Herbert. Let's jump in. So Chargers rookie quarterback, Justin Herbert, surprisingly made his NFL debut On Sunday against the Kansas City Chiefs, he started the game. And again, man, the word I used, and I will repeat again, is surprised. I was surprised he played at all. I was surprised he did so well. We'll talk about what happened. Uh, There were some mistakes that I think are important to highlight at the end of this topic. Uh, It's going to turn into basically a film analysis video where I show you what went wrong and part of the mistakes Justin Herbert made and why I'm not all in and sold on Justin Herbert. Uh, there are a couple things. Again, his stat line was 22 for 33 passing, had 311 yards, one touchdown, one interception. I want to start with what was good because I want to praise the guy. I don't hate Justin Herbert, despite the way that people think and kind of believe about me. Uh, Justin put on his Instagram, I loved it. He said, relentlessly seeking improvement. That's awesome. I love that. That's what he should be doing. Um, the question has never been whether or not Justin Herbert is capable. You know, go watch Colorado versus Oregon last year. Justin Herbert was incredible against Colorado his senior year. The question with Justin Herbert is, can he be consistent? That's what he needs to do. Now, to me, it's only one game. I don't want to overreact, but I will say that Justin looked improved somewhat from college to his first game in the NFL. He had this awesome touchdown pass into the back corner of the end zone, uh, Justin has this massive arm where you know he threw it before the corner could get into position. That's really, really cool. The Chargers had this 17-play drive. Uh, it ended in a field goal, but a 17-play drive, that's, that's not an accident. That's really, really good football. So credit to Justin Herbert. There are some things he did on Sunday that I liked. Now, I've got a lot of messages from people saying, apologize to Justin Herbert, or you were wrong about Justin Herbert. And those people look at the stats or they look at highlights, and I get it. If you look at just stats or highlights, then he looks incredible. Um, But if you're going to look at the game just from a simplistic surface level view, then I would say, well, he also didn't win the game. And while you think that's not fair, I agree that's not fair. So let's have a talk about nuance and dive into the nuance of what happened rather than just looking at a surface level with Justin Herbert. I want to explain his mistakes in a minute. Uh, But I do want to say, if I'm wrong and Justin Herbert becomes a star quarterback in the NFL, I have no problem admitting that. I will 
I, I admit when I'm wrong. I try that all the time. When I'm wrong about stuff, I own it. It's important to me. It's one of my core values. But one game is not enough for me to admit that I'm wrong about Justin Herbert because I don't know that I'm wrong about Justin Herbert yet. One game with some good throws and a lot of mistakes is not enough for me. I will admit it's harder today to be skeptical than I was a week ago. I feel better about Justin Herbert than I used to after just one game. Seems like he's working really, really hard. I love his quarterback coach, Pep Hamilton. Pep Hamilton is a former XFL head coach. I really like him. And I'm also really glad that Justin Herbert has Mike Williams and Keenan Allen at receiver. Their skill set really helps Justin Herbert. I mean, there are times where they can make up for his inaccuracy with really, really good catches. There was a throw literally on Sunday where Keenan Allen you know, caught a ball behind him and pulled it in and got a pretty solid gain from that. But I'm not ready to dive all in on Justin Herbert. I just simply, for what I've seen, I go, ah, okay. I know that's crazy. People are like, oh, his stats were good. Stats are not everything. You got to understand. Right now to me, I see about a 50-50 chance that he succeeds. uh, And it really depends on how hard he works moving forward. Uh, his improvement is encouraging, though. He looks a little better Sunday than he did in college. Uh, but here are the mistakes he made. The first mistake is very obvious. It's his interception on second and two. He's running to the left. There's open field in front of him. And instead of running for a solid gain, he tries to throw the ball back across the field into double coverage. It's a bone-headed mistake. Interception, really, really bad play. Just take the easy first down and run the ball. I don't understand what's going on here with this thought process. In the third quarter on first and 10, he took a big sack instead of throwing the ball away. It's another moment where you're like, dude, throw the ball away. Instead, they caused a second and 24. There was a third and seven where the Chiefs blitzed, and he had a man open against man coverage, and he doesn't throw to the open man, but he does throw the ball away. So I'm glad he didn't take the sack, but I wish he'd hit his open man. It's kind of a weird situation where he could have handled the blitz better but he also could have handled it worse. You kind of grade it neutrally where it's not a positive. It's also not a minus. There was a third and goal play where he turned the wrong way. Uh, he missed a number of throws where he was just straight up inaccurate. His first throw was an overthrow to Keenan Allen. The dude does have a cannon for an arm, though. The ball gets out of his hands incredibly quick. Later, he threw an out route too high and out of bounds. There was a third and two where he had Hunter Henry open underneath. Another just blatant, really bad miss. There was a lot to be excited about. But Chargers fans are also overlooking a lot of concerning mistakes and a lot of concerning things that happened on Sunday. And I totally get it. I understand why Chargers fans are all in on Justin Herbert. Part of it is because they need to be. There's a layer of emotion here involved where Chargers fans need Justin Herbert to be amazing because they picked him to be their franchise quarterback. Personally, I'm not sold yet. Um, You know, time will tell. I'm excited to keep watching Justin Herbert. I want to watch his development. To be clear, I want to see Justin Herbert succeed. I think it'd be awesome. He seems like a good guy. He's from my home state. I am not rooting against Justin Herbert. But my job as an analyst is to be honest. And when I watch Justin Herbert, I go, a lot of mistakes. We'll see what happens. I think, again, a 50-50 shot is about what I see, which is higher than it would have been a couple weeks ago, so that's good. Um, I also didn't even mention the underthrow to Mike Williams where 
Mike Williams was wide open in the end zone and Justin missed the throw. He allowed a defender to make a play and stop a touchdown. You're like, ugh, that's a bad, you can't miss that. So look, time will tell with Justin Herbert. Again, I want to see Justin succeed, but right now I'm skeptical and I got reason to be skeptical and we'll see how things go on. Again, I have no problem being wrong. If Justin proves me wrong, I'd be happy for him. I'll own it. I'll talk about it. But right now, we're not there yet. Let's see in a couple weeks. And if he ends up playing, he might not even play. It looks like he's going to be the backup to Tyrod Taylor. At some point, we'll have a, a good collection of Justin Herbert games to watch and review film on. Uh, but for right now, I am still not sold on Justin Herbert. Now, we saw something really, really cool with Justin Herbert's first start. Uh, whether it was an accident or not, we may not know. Uh, you know, nobody knew that Justin Herbert was going to be starting until minutes before the game. And I hope a lot of NFL teams took notice of this because, you know, because of the fact that no one knew Justin was going to be starting, number one, there was no hype at all. And number two, it really helped Justin Herbert's performance because Kansas City's defense had no idea he was playing. They couldn't prepare for him. And so later down the road, when Tua Tungavaloa makes his first start for the Miami Dolphins, whether that's this year or next year or who knows when, right? I really hope that Miami does Tua a favor. Don't tell anybody. Do not tell anybody. Keep it a secret. Save Tua Tungavaloa from all the hype and all the drama. I think part of that really helped Justin Herbert on Sunday. I think it was an accident. But I loved that Justin Herbert's first start was handled in a way that saved him from a whole week of media hype and this cycle of buildup and, you know, overreactions and analysis and just people overanalyze everything. And because no one expected Justin Herbert to start, I think it really, really helped remove a layer of tension that might have been there if Justin Herbert had out of play. There's no pressure because of the way things were handled. I love it. And I, I understand that you want a quarterback who can handle pressure for sure. But if you don't need to add pressure to a player, a young guy learning how to play in the NFL, don't make a, guy, a quarterback's job harder than it needs to be. You don't need to add pressure. Don't. I think screw the media. They don't need to know. And if you can start a rookie quarterback and nobody is expecting that, that might be the best possible way to introduce a starting quarterback, a rookie starting quarterback, to the NFL. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about the NFL Week 2's craziness. Just all kinds of stuff happened. Gardner Minshew, Tom Brady, injuries, a whole lot of stuff. And then later, we will talk about Justin Fields, the Ohio State quarterback. And I'll tell you guys why I'm not doing NFL power rankings. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm taking a short break. I will be right all right, let's keep the show going. Uh, you may or may not know this episode. Oh, oh boy. But I, I've been recording this for like two hours, like between um, taking breaks to try to get my throat good again, uh, just everything involved. I mean, I, I really hope people like this episode. It's it's just a, a massive episode. I'm putting a lot of effort, a lot of time into this. I hope people love it tomorrow uh, when it comes out. And uh, I hope the hard work pays off because I'm really, I guess, who cares about views? Like, I want to make a product that I'm proud of. And uh, for sure, I'm doing that today with today's episode. Um, 
I did a topic and made a video about the Patriots-Seahawks game, the Raiders and Saints game on Monday Night Football, the Cowboys' crazy comeback against the Falcons. I also covered Justin Herbert's first start. But a lot of other things happened during week two of the NFL season. And so this topic is kind of for everything else. Uh, you know, first of all, there was a crazy Patrick Mahomes throw in that uh, that Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes game. That I, and I've never seen a throw like this where on the run, Patrick Mahomes is running to the right. He launches down the down the sideline. Just a, no, I guess not even down the sideline. His, run, his receiver's running down the middle of the field. Hits him perfectly in stride on the run. Just an unbelievable throw. That stands out to me from week two. But week two of the NFL season was a crazy, chaotic mess. I want to start with all the injuries. I am not confident I can list all the injuries that happened. So many took place. I lost track of them, honestly. I'm going to share as many as I can. If I miss some, I'm sure I will. I apologize to your favorite team. That's not my intent. But so much stuff went down. I, I don't feel confident that I can cover all of it. Honestly, I'm doing the best I can. Uh, Denver Broncos quarterback Drew Locke has sprained his AC joint in his shoulder. Uh, he'll likely be out three to five weeks. I feel so bad for Denver Broncos fans. I mean, the year started with them losing Von Miller uh, to a freak injury. Their top receiver, Cortland Sutton, has just been announced that he's out for the year two with a torn ACL. Uh, I was expecting a really big run from the Denver Broncos. It's awful that that's probably not going to happen now for them. I just feel terrible and terrible for them. Uh, the 49ers are in trouble. They lost defensive ends, Nick Bosa and Solomon Thomas. They both tore their ACL. They're out for the year. Two of their running backs are hurt, Tevin Coleman and Raheem Mostert. That's a big deal. The 49ers quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, has a high ankle sprain. Now, they're lucky because the 49ers have one of the best, if not the best, backup quarterback in the entire NFL, Nick Mullins. Jimmy G will probably miss next week's game against the New York Giants. That's what I would do. I mean, they could play him if they want, but I would sit him out. Why risk a re-injury with Jimmy Garoppolo when you don't need to? Giants running back Saquon Barkley's out for the year with a torn ACL. That's really, really sad. I feel sad for Saquon Barkley. I feel sad for Giants fans. It's all terrible. Ravens corner, uh, Tavon Young tore his ACL. So did Bruce Irvin and Marquise, uh, Mar Marquise Blair for Seattle. All three of those guys are out for the year with torn ACLs. Panthers running back Christian McCaffrey has a high ankle sprain. Going to be out for a few weeks. It's just insane. Like, I cannot keep up with all the injuries. I know there are more. Like, Paris Campbell is out for the Colts. So is Malik Hooker. Just a wild, messy weekend. So much took place in the NFL and so many guys got hurt. Now, the Vikings, the Minnesota Vikings got embarrassed by the Indianapolis Colts 28-11. to And uh, Kirk Cousins had three interceptions. You know, I watched the film, and the first interception was really, really bad. It was a bad throw and a double coverage. A bad decision, just not a good play. But his second and third interceptions were just, I don't think, his fault. Uh, or at least were not really ones you can hold against him where... Interception number two was on a Hail Mary before halftime. You check the ball deep. You hope somebody on your team comes down with it. The other team caught it. That's not really a bad decision. That's just a, just a play that happens. And his third interception was tipped. So I truly believe that these stats make Kirk Cousins appear worse than he really is. And I think the Vikings have much bigger problems than Kirk Cousins, in my opinion. Yeah, another thing that went on, the Washington... Football team lost to the Arizona Cardinals 30-15. to 
This is good news. Maybe. I'm not sure. I would have predicted going into this game that the struggles for Washington on offense, they scored 15 points at the end of the game. I would have figured that their struggles on offense were due to accuracy being the problem for their quarterback, Dwayne Haskins. Now, that was not the case. So, again, maybe that's good. Maybe the other issues are even more concerning. I don't know. Timing. They have dropped passes that were a problem. Dwayne Haskins kept getting hit as he threw. There was some miscommunication with his receivers. Like, there were a lot of problems going on for the Washington football team on Sunday. They have a lot of things they need to work on to be better. Logan Thomas, their tight end, could have had a better day. But there's no shame in Washington. I mean, they lost to a better team. So I don't know that that's entirely the worst thing ever. But there are definitely a lot of little things for Washington and Dwayne Haskins to clean up moving forward as the year goes on. But I'm not ready to bail completely on Washington. I mean, I'm not. they're not going to be an incredible team. I never thought they were. But I'm excited to continue to watch growth as the year goes on for the Washington football team. Gardner Minshew almost had a really cool comeback against Tennessee. The Titans beat the Jaguars 33-30. to The Titans were up 24-10 to at halftime. And then Gardner Minshew battled back and uh, had the game tied 30-30 to near the end of the game. And I got to say, I love watching Gardner Minshew. It's not just his playing style. It's his leadership. It's everything. The dude is battling for his life and battling for his job. He's like, guys, please do not replace me. I love that happening in Jacksonville. And funny enough, the Jaguars might be too good to be able to draft Trevor Lawrence anyway. So I look at what the Jaguars are doing and I go, man, Gardner Minshew is just battling his butt off trying to keep his job. It's very compelling to me. Gardner was 35, or was 30 for 45 passing at 339 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions. Interestingly enough, too, both interceptions were tipped up and really weren't Gardner Minshew's fault. So I don't know that it's just a weird game for Gardner Minshew where he almost had a comeback. I wish he'd finished it. Uh, I'm sad he didn't finish the comeback, but the interceptions that were thrown that are on his statistic and on his stat line are really not his fault. Now, the Titans won the game with a game-winning field goal at the end. I love calling Ryan Tannehill clutch. I've never been shy about it. When I can, I say that. I can't do that here. Kind of a weird ending to the game. On the final drive, Ryan Tannehill was handed really, really good field position for the Titans offense. And he got a key pass interference call. I mean, these are this is what happened on the final drive. They had a nine-yard run for Derrick Henry. Then a two-yard run. Next, they had a five-yard pass on a sticker out, which is basically like a five-yard hitch to a, a, a guy kind of over the middle. The Titans offense then got a pass interference call. Then they had a five-yard out route. So in total, the Titans offense got 21 yards on their final drive. They won with a field goal. I wish I could say that Ryan Tannehill was clutch and he won this game and he's incredible. I think they were kind of handed a victory by the Jaguars. And again, I'm just sad that Gardner Minshew could not finish the comeback on Sunday. The Buccaneers beat the Panthers 31 to 17. Tom Brady was 23 for 35 passing, 217 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Leonard Fournette also ran the ball 12 times for 103 yards and two touchdowns. Look, Tom Brady's interception was a bad throw. It was about 10 inches too high. And a little bit behind his receiver. I think it was I think it was thrown to Gronk, if I remember correctly. There was a fumble on a handoff, technically, that goes as a fumble for Tom Brady. 
Tom Brady did have a great back shoulder touchdown to Mike Evans. And I think what's most interesting about this game is that there were three touchdowns dropped by Tampa Bay. And that's not going to show up on the stat sheet, but I think Tom Brady should have had four touchdowns on Sunday. Scotty Miller dropped a touchdown. Now, later in the drive, Ronald Jones ran for a touchdown, so they still scored on that drive. Cyril Grayson dropped a touchdown. It literally bounced off his helmet. I went, how does that happen? And Tom Brady was disgusted looking after. And he tried to hide it, but he couldn't. He just looked, like, frustrated. LaShawn Shady McCoy also dropped a touchdown in the end zone, in the back of the end zone. Just a bad drop where he went, oh, come on, dude. That's a touchdown. You got to have that. So Tom Brady should have had four touchdowns and one interception. The Buccaneers ultimately missed out on 11 points. They could have and they should have won, you know, 42 to 17. That's a lot more convincing of a victory. Don't forget that. Tom Brady still got it. There, there's still good stuff happening for Tom Brady in Tampa Bay. And uh, I wouldn't write off Tom Brady completely yet, especially watching the way that Drew Brees struggled on Monday Night Football against the Raiders. Now, the Chicago Bears won 17 to 13 against the New York Jets. The Bears quarterback, Mitchell Trubisky, was 18 for 28 passing with 190 yards, two touchdowns, and two interceptions. I'm going to start doing something new every time I talk about Mitchell Trubisky. A while back, Trubisky said that he wanted to be called Mitchell rather than Mitch. He wanted the L part, the Mitchell rather than Mitch. It was kind of hilarious because literally the entire sports world just straight up ignored his request. Nobody followed through. Nobody really listened to what he said. It's kind of funny to me. So I'm doing this new thing where if Trubisky plays well enough, then he earns his name. If he does well, then that week I will call him Mitchell Trubisky. Mitchell the entire week. Get the E-L-L, Mitchell part on there. If he doesn't do well, he's getting called Mitch. I'm sure some Chicago sports radio people have done this. If they haven't, they should. Sunday against the Giants was a Mitch game for Trubisky. He doesn't get the Mitchell name. He's going to get called Mitch the rest of this segment. It's not that Mitch doesn't make some good plays, but I just wasn't impressed. Uh, The big problem is that it's year four. By year four, you're expecting things to finally work out. I mean, (laughs) why is it not coming to fruition for Mitchell Trubisky? Where is the progress? I don't understand. Like, we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and it's just not happening for Mitchell Trubisky. He still hasn't made a big jump. He does get incrementally better, like little tiny bits of progress every year I watch him, but it's not enough. His improvement is too small, and Chicago needs more. Mitch doesn't have it, though, unfortunately. So I have run completely out of patience. It's been two games. It's already enough for me. And by the way, Mitch's arm is awful. He throws a weak spiral, throws a ton of ducks that are just like not like you watch Derek Carr throw the football. You're like, hey, that's just beautiful. You watch Mitchell Trubisky throw the football. You're like, ooh, never show me that again. It's ugly. It's just not. Unfortunately, that's a real thing. Like I hate watching Trubisky throw the football. It's just like. Come on, dude, that's the best you got. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. That's what Chicago and the Chicago Bears keep doing. 
They keep doing the same thing over and over again, hoping maybe this is the time that Mitchell Trubisky is finally good, finally great. And it's just not happening. His interceptions weren't terrible. Again, Trubisky wasn't awful, but he wasn't really all that impressive either. His second interception was just a really good play by the defender where Giants corner James Bradbury literally just stole the ball from his receiver. It's also worth saying that Anthony Miller dropped what could have been a touchdown pass. So Trubisky isn't terrible, but he's just totally average. And I'm tired of waiting. I'm over it. I am over Mitchell Trubisky. I've given him chance after chance after chance. It's just not happening. It's also worth noting that the Packers had a massive game. They beat the Lions 42-21. to Aaron Rodgers was very good. I do think he can be better, though. He had a couple misses where I went, Aaron, like you got, you got better than that. What's interesting, though, is Aaron had an average game, and they still won by a ton. I mean, the Packers are a really good football team. Aaron Jones, the Packers running back, had two touchdowns. The Packers are the best team in the NFC North very, very easily. They can run. They can throw. They play good defense. I think Matthew Stafford and Matt Patricia are going to be gone from Detroit after this year. The coach will be fired. They're a longtime quarterback. They're finally, they're finally going to move on from an aging Matthew Stafford. He threw an ugly pick six on Sunday. And I, I just, there are so many mistakes from Matthew Stafford. Like, I like Matthew Stafford. I keep wanting to have him be the guy. And he, he still just makes mistakes where you go, bro, that's, you can't do that. The, the interception at the end of the game against Chicago two weeks ago in week one, I went, how do you do that? How do you throw an interception in your own territory with a lead against Chicago on a third down? Like I think it was third and five. You're like, dude, you cannot do that. And too many times that stuff happens with Matthew Stafford where it's just, it's time for the Lions to move on. They got to clean house and like actually clean house, get rid of the quarterback, get rid of the coach. Even if I think Matthew Stafford could go somewhere else and succeed maybe with a different coach and maybe a better coach. I don't know, but it's certainly not going to work in Detroit because it never has worked in Detroit. Uh, those are my notes from week two. We'll talk about the Bills and the Jets at some point this week. I want to dive into Sam Darnold. I also want to dive into Josh Allen. It just, it's been a lot. I'm mean, really, this episode has been massive. So uh, that'll be coming up in the next episode. But week two is a crazy, crazy week. A lot of stuff happened. And I hope you enjoyed my thoughts on it. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, coming up, we'll talk about Justin Fields, the Ohio State quarterback. Uh, I heard his voice. Oh, excuse me. I heard my voice. I heard my voice on Justin Fields' Instagram story. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about why I'm not doing power rankings. And we'll end the show by talking about Miami and Louisville, what happened in that game, the story from that game. I think something special is going down in Miami. We'll talk about all of it. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, I know that a lot of people that listen to the podcast, skip ahead. So I know that very few people are going to hear this. So I want to share something really exciting and tease something coming up ahead for you very special people that haven't skipped ahead, that are still listening and hear everything, every single thing that I say. Uh, I'm working on a really cool Bill Belichick topic. I'm a giant nerd. I love football. And there's something Bill Belichick did that I'm not going to say any more. There's a Bill Belichick moment that, nope, nothing. I'm not going to share it. I'm working on a Bill Belichick topic. He's the Patriots head coach. And, uh, oh, man, 
so excited to share with you guys. Hopefully, maybe Friday. It's gonna. There's a lot of effort going into it, but it's uh, it's gonna be really really fun. It takes just a lot of brain power, a lot of thought to try to uh, nail it down. But it's one that I'm I'm really really excited to share. And so, for you very few people out there that listen to every single thing I say, there you go. There's a little tease of what's to be ahead. I want to tell you how my weekend started. A guy named Simeon Kelly made an awesome hype video for Justin Fields, the Ohio State quarterback. And uh, first of all, Simeon, great work. I have done video for years. I worked for ESPN. I worked for Fox Sports. Um, That's a great edit, man. I know good work when I see it. That's really good filmmaking. Well done, Simeon. Um, I took a screen grab of the video. I want you to take a listen or watch if you're listening or watching This is how the video starts. A while back, I said that Justin Fields, Ohio State's quarterback, isn't that great of an NFL prospect as a quarterback. Obviously, that's my voice. Uh, There's no editing. I did say that. I really did say that word for word. And uh, Justin Fields put that on his Instagram story. In fact, that is a screen grab of Justin Fields' Instagram story. And so what that means is that Justin Fields has heard me say that. And I want to be very, very clear because I really, really want people to get the story right. So, Justin, if you're out there, if you're listening, I want you to know that I don't hate you. And, in fact, I'm rooting for you to succeed. I want you to make it in the NFL. I want you to prove me wrong. I want you to make me look silly. And I also hope that you look at your film and you agree there are things you need to work on. But I don't hate you, and I want you to succeed. Justin Fields, again, if you're listening, I want it very, very clear. I don't hate you. I want you to make it, and I, and I hope that you succeed in the NFL. I'm going to stop talking directly at Justin. I came out and said that Justin Fields needs to improve in order to become an NFL quarterback. I made a video, word for word, that's the title. I'm very proud of it. And in that video, I detail Justin Fields' problems. And the main one was his accuracy. Often guys last year were wide open, and because he was throwing to wide open guys, his underthrows were less noticed or any kind of inaccuracy. Hey, it's a slight adjustment. You're wide open, easy catch, bam. You know, or his team was winning by a lot so that people ignored the small mistakes that Justin Fields made as a quarterback, like an, uh, an out route that was airmailed out of bounds. Or against Michigan State, he had two deep balls that simply got away from him. One was... Uh, intercepted like there are throws like you can't allow a deep ball to just get away from you like that ball location needs to be better from Justin Fields he had good stats last year 100 percent but Sean Mannion had good stats and Luke Falk at Washington State had good numbers Landry Jones had really good college statistics at Oklahoma but college stats do not mean that you'll be a successful NFL franchise quarterback. I hope Justin Fields hears my analysis of him and is motivated. It would break my heart, honestly, if Justin Fields heard that and suddenly didn't believe in himself. I don't think that's what happens. I'm pretty sure, because I know when I was a player, when I played quarterback in college, anytime I was doubted, it motivated me. You know, and if Justin Fields heard me talk about him and share my analysis of him. And if Justin Fields' reaction was, I got nothing to work on. There's no, I'm perfect. There's nothing wrong. Then that'd be a problem too, because no quarterback is ever perfect. And Justin Fields certainly is not perfect. 
But I'm really, really excited to watch Ohio State play this year because I am looking for, I want to see improvement from Justin Fields' ability to throw the ball. I want to see it. That's what I'm looking for with Ohio State this year. It's my number one reason to watch the entire Big Ten. They got this really interesting potential NFL quarterback, and I want to watch Justin Fields show better timing, more anticipation, better ball location. But I want to say I don't hate the guy. People need to get the story right. I am not a hater. I'm an analyst doing my job. My job is to be honest. But I can share a critique of a guy and not hate him. And I I really hate that there's this weird world where if you say something negative about somebody, you're automatically a hater. I am not a hater of Justin Fields. I'm rooting for the guy. But again, my job is to be honest. I hope Justin Fields improves. I want to see him succeed. But I also am an analyst and I have to do my job. And my job sometimes is to be honest. I need to drink some water real quick. I, uh, dude, the night is wearing on. It's 1.26 a.m. I started recording this at like 10 p.m., something, something like 10.30 p.m. Like, I mean, I've taken a lot of breaks. I took like a 30-minute break at one point because my voice was just dying. Um, I want to talk about this, man. I got asked a question on Ask Zach last week. A guy asked me, are you planning on doing power rankings this year in the NFL? And I had a kind of non-committal answer. And as I've thought about it more... It's become a strong no. I am not going to do power rankings this year. Things could change. Maybe someday I change my mind. Uh, I don't want to put myself in a box. Like I never, ever want to put myself in a situation where I can't say, yeah, I changed my mind. I'm going to do power rankings now. Like if I want to, I can. It's my show. I do whatever I want. But right now, I have no interest doing power rankings for the NFL. And there are two big reasons. I think people know by now. I really, really hate network sports coverage. I hate the way network television or network radio covers sports. There's a lot of problems that bother me. I very, very happily do my own thing. I get emails sometimes. People are like, you know, if you wear a suit and tie, you might get hired by some network. And I'm like, no, 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 dude, I don't want to go to a network. I intentionally choose. I've gotten job offers, dude. I don't want to work for a network. I choose to do my own thing. I'm very happy doing that. And uh, sorry, sorry, uh, it really fires me up. Uh, People that do radio or even, you know, hosts on television, they do power rankings for two big reasons. Number one is is to create controversy. And look, honestly, I have no desire to create any more controversy than I already seem to do organically. I don't just being myself seems controversial enough. Um, you know, making content simply with the intention of being controversial. It doesn't interest me. I I don't want to do that. I have no desire. And if you casually listen to me, that might surprise you. But people that listen enough of my, to enough of my content, people that listen enough to know my heart would know that I never intend to make people angry. I never intentionally rile people up. I try to be honest. I try really hard to be myself. Um, you know, another reason why big national hosts do power rankings is because it gives them a chance to talk about a team they don't always talk about. I mean, I, I haven't talked about the Buffalo Bills a lot this year, and if I did a power ranking, it would give me an opportunity to give the Buffalo Bills praise, which makes sense. I, I get why people do it. It's like a sprinkler. You want to hit the whole league at once and kind of sprinkle some things where you can. Um, 
And it gives you a chance to shout out teams you don't cover very often. My answer is, well, if you want to talk about the Buffalo Bills, how about you do a film analysis of their quarterback? That's coming up ahead in the coming days. Um, I don't think I need to do a, a sprinkler thing and try to do a power ranking so I can find a way to mention every team. How about you just actually talk about that team? I try to cover every team every week. I'm not perfect to do my very best, though. I mean, I cover obscure teams like the Jacksonville Jaguars, even. So... And I want to say, I, I'm sure that some people do power rankings because it's fun. Uh, I know friends of mine that do them, and I know those people are not network television. My friends that do power rankings do it because they like doing it. And that, that's a different thing, all completely separate, right? I personally don't find it fun. I don't enjoy it. I see no reason to create a list of you know, obscure measurement that's hard to quantify. So I just don't have any desire to do NFL power rankings. It's not something that interests me. Um, I think maybe that's the main point here is like, as much as I hate sports radio, I don't want to be inflammatory. I don't want to create controversy. I don't feel I need need to shoehorn in ways to talk about the Buffalo Bills or whatever random team. I also just don't want to do it. And so, um, yeah, NFL power rankings are not something I'm going to do this year at all. And uh, I mean, maybe that changes in like three years from now or five years or who knows. But right now, um, power rankings are something I have no interest in doing whatsoever. I want to end today's show with this. On Saturday, Miami played Louisville and Miami won 47 to 34. The game wasn't all that close. Uh, Despite the high score, Miami dominated. I mean, there were many, many points where Miami was up by 20 points in this game. And I got a couple key takeaways from this game. Number one, in case you don't know, the University of Miami, the the Hurricanes, they have the best kicker in all of college football. I mean, the dude hit four field goals. He hit five extra points. His name is Jose Borgales, and he is just such a stud. I mean, Borgales, I hope I said his name right. I mean, no, if I said his name wrong, I mean, no, no, uh, nothing against him, man. I really, I'm a big fan of this guy, in fact. He had a 57-yard field goal easily. I think him and his like holder were yelling, would have been good from 65. Like They are just pumped up. And Jose Borgales is not nervous at all. Like, not even a little bit. The dude is all confidence. And dare I say, like, the dude has swagger. Like, he is, he has it. He is not nervous at all. He's the kind of guy where he wants to make the final kick down two points from 50 yards. Like, he's the guy that has so much confidence, he wants that final kick at the end of the game. That's a rare kind of human being. I am such a big fan of Borgales. Jose, awesome, awesome stud kicker. I think the best in college football. Number two, Miami's quarterback, Derek King, is also a stud. Louisville's defense really, really struggled in this game. They had a, a number of busted coverages where they very easily gave Miami touchdowns, even like 75-yard touchdowns where... Like, I mean, there was a play where Derek King stepped down as if he was going to run, run the ball. The running back runs right by everybody as if he's going to block, then runs downfield. Derek King steps down, steps up, easy touchdown. Like, the easiest 75-yard touchdown you'll ever get in your life. And I'm really curious what actually happens when Derek King gets challenged. Like, I'm really excited to watch Miami play a legitimate, really good defense. I hope we get that. Maybe Notre Dame, maybe North Carolina. I don't know if they play Clemson this year, but I, at the very least maybe in the – if they don't play Clemson on their schedule because they're not in the same division, the AFC, they'll probably play each other in 
the championship game. And I don't know that they beat Clemson like at all, but it'd be interesting to see Derek King against a really good defense. That's what I want to watch. And the key to this offense is the offensive coordinator, Rhett Lashley. Rhett Lashley played for Gus Malzahn in high school because Gus Malzahn, if you don't know, it's kind of crazy. Gus Malzahn was a high school college, was a high school football coach at a high school who got a job at Arkansas kind of to go with Mitch Mustaine. There's a great documentary about it. It's very interesting. So Rhett Lashley coached with Gus Malzahn for a long time. And De'Eric King is doing very, very little. The quarterback is doing very little at the line of scrimmage. He's not changing very many plays. Rhett Lashley is the one changing plays and calling audibles. On the sideline, there was a moment where late in the game against Louisville, they could see a problem with the coverage. Rhett Lashley is going crazy trying to get Derek King's attention. They they get the play. They change the play. Derek King just goes, yes, sir, yes, sir. Bam, stop the ball, touchdown. And so Rhett Lashley is the brain, but I don't want to discredit Derek King either. Like He is an extension of Rhett Lashley. They're very much on the same page. They work incredibly well together. It's a really cool partnership. And I, I, I really enjoy watching Miami. And what I'm so curious about with Miami moving forward is First of all, I think somebody in the NFL is going to fall in love with De'Ara King. He's going to get drafted. He's a great leader. He runs well. He's a kind of guy I'd want to work with him. If I, if I was a coach, I'd say, look, I can help Derek King become even better at throwing the football. There's just so much potential there with De'Ara King. I, I don't know how somebody isn't going to take him and want him and try to invest in him. And what's interesting is, first of all, after Miami— or excuse me, after De'Eric King, what's next for Miami? I mean, so De'Eric King is in his final year in college football. He's going to leave and go to the NFL. Is Rhett Lashley going to leave Miami and go be a head coach somewhere? Can Miami pay him to stay? I hope so, because Rhett Lashley, after two games, looks like a freaking genius in college football. And then after, you know, if Rhett Lashley does stay at Miami... When De'Eric King moves on to the NFL, who's going to be the next Miami quarterback? That's another interesting question I have. There's a lot going on at Miami. People need to take notice that there is something brewing and something building. Miami's got something going. I'm really, really excited to watch moving forward. And uh, they are the college football team maybe that I am most... I mean, there's a couple of fascinating stories. I should probably do a topic like the most fascinating stories right now in college football. But Miami certainly is one of them. De'Eric King... Rhett Lashley, they've got, they're playing really well. I like the turnover chain, by the way. Uh, I know some people hate it. I like it because it gives you a reward. Like players go, if you get a turnover, you're excited. And then you literally get a physical reward. Like I get to hold the turnover chain. It's a cool manufactured moment of celebration for a coach. And uh, my dad, my whole life has always told me, you got to celebrate the little things. And getting a turnover on defense is a thing you should celebrate. So I think it's great for the players. I know people hate it. I think it's just silly to hate it. Like from a player's perspective, it's good for recruiting. It's good for your morale. It's good for everything. And it's a reward literally for doing good on the field. Like it's such a good idea doing a turnover chain. So I don't know, man. I, I love what Miami's doing down there. Uh, in, in I think in Dade County is where Miami is. I think that's right. I wish I had a better, cooler way to put that. Like down there in Miami in Florida, question mark. Um, but I... I'm just fascinated and very excited about Miami. They're doing really, really interesting stuff in college football, and people had better pay attention. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Oh, my goodness. I have quite a task trying to edit this and put it together. It is 1.36 in the morning. 
Oh boy. Um, meaning I got to edit it. I got to put in film. I got to do color grading and then upload it, which takes another three hours. And uh, I hope you guys get to see it in the morning. I, I really hope you. I, like I, I worked so hard on this episode, legitimately. Like I have poured my heart and soul. I hope you love it. Hope you have a great day. Bum bum. Bam. We are.